Please note, if you're listening to this, you must be 18 years of age or older. This podcast contains adult themes and may include descriptions that listeners could find offensive. Thank you. It is this shattering of indifference, this possibility of one for the other, that constitutes the ethical event. Emmanuel Levinas Welcome to the Kinky Nerdy Polly Podcast. This is episode five. All right. So today, for our second kinky episode... Our second kinky episode, our fifth episode overall... We're going to be talking about consent. It's a big topic, and we're not going to get to all of it in this one episode. Probably not. Once we start getting listener feedback, we'll probably be talking about this a lot more. But I guess the first question for our audience who have just found this podcast and wondering, what are we talking about? What are we talking about, G? Well, Em, we're talking about consent. So what is consent? This is a good question. So I think I think at, a most, at the most basic level, pulling real far back here, but at its most basic level, consent is simply the act of granting permission. Giving consent. uh, Yes. Giving consent is giving permission. Yes, giving consent is giving permission, and asking for consent is asking a person for permission. So, outside of sort of the kink subculture or American romance culture, you have to sign consent forms to, like, go on field trips or to enter potentially hazardous areas. Like, I consent to waive my rights so that I can enter this hard hat area, even though I wear it might be dangerous, and so on and so forth. But going down a little bit deeper, just a little bit deeper, a little bit deeper. That's definitely a hypnotic word. <laughs> I feel like ever since Inception, that'd be a, a big, a big hypno. I assume Inception's like a big hypno thing. You know, I don't know anybody in the hypnosis community that is super into that. Hmm. But it could be. Like the movie or the concept? Or both? Both. I mean, I haven't heard of it before, but it's I'm sure it exists. Okay. So we're going a little bit deeper then. Yeah, we're going to go a little bit deeper. We're going to go to the next level. And we're going to talk about, I think, consent in American romance culture. And correct me if I'm wrong, Em. Because I might be. I will always correct you, G. Consent, when it comes to romantic or sexual acts, is the seeking of permission in order to proceed with a sexual, a romantic or sexual act. Yes. Generally, it's going to be more sexual. Yes. Although sometimes there are some romantic consent things, but I think that it's it's less common. Yes. So I think we're going to encounter our first sort of consent barrier, consent issue here, which is that, for the most part, the way that consent is obtained in American romance culture is that a person who's perceived as female is pursued by a person who's perceived as male. There is sort of signals and body cues to let each other know that the pursuit is either going well or going poorly. And it is up to the male presenting person to read cues correctly in order to go to the next the next step next take the step. next action yes yes and it's 
it's always framed in this very heteronormative context. Yes, which is why I was struggling with the words. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, well, this is sort of what we're going to be challenging in today's episode is sort of the both the heteronormative culture around consent and also the vanilla culture around consent, which mm-hmm. I feel like I've been a little spoiled being in the kink community. Of course, the kink community has its own host of consent problems. Yes. But certainly when I've experienced more vanilla, quote unquote, interactions, there's less active communication asking for consent yes. than when I'm in a kink setting. I will admit, I one of the things I feel like that I kind of get spoiled by, by being in a community that is at least aware of some of these issues about consent, is I'm always surprised when I meet somebody who is not in the kink scene and they just decide to hug me without asking. Yes. I'm always, like, briefly surprised by that, and then I remember it's like, oh, this is just something that people do. And it doesn't mean people should just do it. Yes, but for sort of small interactions where I'm probably not going to interact with this person ever again, I feel like it's usually not worth the hassle of, like, trying to say, it's like, I wish you didn't hug me right then without asking me. Like, I would have liked the hug, but I wish you'd ask me first. I'm trying to explain the whole thing. That's going to take a... A revolution on a societal level yeah in terms of the, that sort of thing and yeah i mean i've had people who were more vanilla or didn't have as much kink background even people who are new to the kink community maybe they don't really know about all of these consent practices and i've had people just kiss me mm-hmm. you know without asking first yeah and obviously that's problematic yeah so yeah i think overall you know you explain that well Amer- american culture doesn't really do a good job of framing consent because of what we see in our media. Yeah, so I feel like this is largely like a media, like Mm -hmm. this is how it's portrayed in the media. There has been sort of a push at sort of an education level to be like, no, especially I feel like there are a lot of colleges nowadays that sort of push the like, the yes means yes model of consent. You should ask you know, verbal consent is sexy and stuff like that. Right. But that's very much sort of education focus, and it's not really appearing in our media in any way, shape, or form. Right. And it's also, you know, the consent is sexy thing is also problematic. Mm-hmm. Consent doesn't have to be sexy for me to have to want to give and get consent. So, like, we also shouldn't be treating consent as, in my opinion, we shouldn't be treating consent as some kind of, like, sexually desirable thing Mm -hmm. it should just be a thing regardless of whether it's sexy or not that's my own opinion Mm -hmm. on consent uh and that's sort of movement and i think you know the yes means yes movement even though there is like that push especially in colleges and universities and in a lot of the kink community too it's still largely framed in a heteronormative way because we've now gone from a no means no consent model which was based on the woman has to prove that she does not want does not want it mm-hmm. in order for there to be some kind of crossing of consent boundaries. Whereas, like the yes means yes, kind of just changes it around and says, okay, well now the responsibility is on the man to prove that he did obtain consent. So even though yes means yes can apply to people in all different sorts of relationships, the overall narrative is still heteronormative. We still see it's the man who is getting the yes. Mm-hmm. We don't really treat women how to get a yes are people in queer relationships how to get a yes and even just well, we don't have enough representation of queer relationships in media to even show Mm -hmm. what does what does it look like what does consent look like in a queer relationship yeah so yes it is still heteronormative i'm still glad there is a push for yes means yes consent model uh, because i feel like it is 
it is a step forward in sort of American romance culture to like, if we can get that model to sort of be adapted, like then we can sort of start getting more into the nuances, if that makes sense. Of sort of like, well, do we really have to have it always be the man pursuing the woman? Because oftentimes, like, when a woman decides to pursue a man, she is labeled a slut. And all the social stigma that's attached to that. And, you know, outside the kink community, there's still a lot of social stigma to attach to being labeled a slut. There's still a lot of stigma relating to sex of any sort. Yeah. Or even non... I mean... You know, it's kind of, like, tricky because it's like, well, if you're having a lot of sex, then you're a slut or you're a whore or whatever. And then maybe we should get some disclaimers in the beginning of this about yeah. some certain particular language. But, you know, on the other hand, you know, you see this discourse against people who are ace who are like, you know, I, I don't experience sexual attraction. People are like, oh, that's so wrong. It's like you, you can't win. Yeah. Almost. So I'm overall, I'm okay with sort of the, the, the yes means yes education push and but i i feel like until there's sort of more of a depiction of that in some form of media preferably a movie of some sort it's just not going to be widely adopted widely adopted we should also talk about like what does yes mean and the yes means yes model okay or like how what does that yes look like so i think i think in in the yes means yes model that yes should be enthusiastic unimpaired individual and revocable yep i think are sort of the four main qualities i remember somebody once came up with an acronym which matched epic but i can never remember some of the words that match up with epic so enthusiastic it means you the yes should not be coerced out of you in any way shape or form it should be a simple m would you like to do a podcast with me yes i would love to do a podcast with you awesome so yeah but here's the thing though enthusiastic looks different for everybody. Yes. And I think when they're saying enthusiastic consent, some people do take that to mean like a yes that sort of sounds hesitant. Like, for example, ask again. Em, would you like to do a podcast with me? Yeah. Mm. It's like kind of like, maybe I don't really want to do a podcast with you. Yeah. And that's not going to sound enthusiastic, as, as enthusiastic as the first one. Yeah. So, you know, first of all, enthusiastic is subjective. Yes. But I think the primary element that the educators are looking for is that the the yes was not coerced. Like, I did not say... I have to do a podcast with you, or something bad will happen. Yeah, or I'm, I'm trying to think of something a little bit more realistic. Like, Em, you have to do this podcast with me, or I won't invite you over anymore. That's sad. Yeah. But no, I think that's actually a different part of the yes means yes model. So there is like a, a form that is like voluntary. And that's, okay. that's the part that says like, this isn't coerced. Enthusiastic really means like, you don't want that sure question mark. Yes. Okay. I guess we have different understandings of those models then. And now I think our listeners are starting to understand <laughs> some of the complexities when it comes to having various consent models and making sure everybody has a similar understanding. Yeah. Well, I think that that's what Because I was, you know, going to university and being involved in a lot of these campaigns. Mm -hmm. And that's what we were saying enthusiastic meant was that it was not a sure, I guess it was a yes, like a solid yes. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes that's not it's not always the ideal way. Again, I think this is a great this is a good step forward. Yes. Like, yes means yes. If it were accepted and we're being portrayed in the media, that's great. And then also there are all these nuances. Yeah. 
I'd say, what is another element? It's personal, like you are consenting to to one person or to the individuals you have marked out in your consent. So if I were to ask you to do a podcast with me and then Tom from down the street showed up while we're doing this podcast about kink and nerdy and, and you don't know who Tom is, you've never met him before. Yeah, there's going to be some problems. I didn't consent to Tom doing this podcast with us. Yeah. Um, also, unimpaired, I wanted to talk a little bit about what unimpaired means. Because, you know, it normally means, like, don't drink and hook up, don't drink and have sex, or don't get consent. What I mean, I guess, is don't get consent when you're, for those things, when you're intoxicated or under the influence. But, you know, people are still going to drink and kink, and people yes. are still going to drink and hook drink up. Drink and hook up. <laughs> That's a very common thing. Yeah, I mean, people often often go to various bars or clubs for the express purpose of like drinking and then hooking up with somebody right so you know like if they're gonna do it anyway my question really is how do we make it safer Mm -hmm. and how do we make this model fit in with that consent is it possible for this model to be compatible with drinking and hooking up or drinking and kinking uh so i have not given this a lot of thought but like my first my first blush impression is that this is not possible when you are drinking to the point of blacking out. There is no way to be able to consent at that point. And I think people who are heavily intoxicated, like and they are trying to solicit sex in some form, instead of granting that solicitation, they should be just turned down and said, You should probably go home now. Mm-hmm. I think when you are not so obviously blackout drunk you know, that's more of a gray area because you can't deny the fact that drinking lowers inhibitions. Uh, that's part of the reason why people drink is to have their inhibitions lowered. I, th- I think that's a lot more dicey. And Right. So one of the ways that I would personally advise for anybody that's listening, if you if you are going to engage in this practice of drinking and hooking up or drinking and kinking or whatever, you know, one good practice, I think, is to... And of course, again, this won't work for everybody, and maybe it's not possible for everybody, but this is how I would do it, is to make sure that the first interaction that I have when I'm actually negotiating the consent, or I'm getting the consent to do something, or I'm giving consent to do the thing, that that is unimpaired. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, you know, if I then want to outline, hey, I might want to drink, here are the things that I'm comfortable with when I'm under the influence, these are the things I'm not comfortable with, can kind of be more upfront while you're unimpaired. Yeah. But, you know, that doesn't mean that, you know, when you're drinking, then, like, anything goes. Mm -hmm. Uh, Of course, you know, you still want to be able to reduce those risks. But I think at least taking that initiative beforehand. So I typically won't drink and hook up with somebody that I don't know at all. Okay. And I think that's, you know, similar to pick up play, like, doing kink with somebody that you don't know. Like, it's, especially if I were going to be, you know, drinking or if that person was drinking. It's just probably not a good idea to do pick up play, in my opinion, with somebody that... Or, you know, if you're intoxicated. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, it's going to happen. There's going to be people who are going to be involved in these sorts of things. So maybe one one way of making it safer is to try to do the consent unimpaired. And I would recommend just knowing that person for longer. As for myself, I'm I'm a lightweight when it comes to drinking. So I tend to not... If I intend to go out drinking, I intend to solely go out drinking. If I intend to go out to do kink or to try to pursue somebody i will i will not i will not drink 
And that's that's just how I do it because I know I'm a lightweight when it comes to drinking. Yeah. Yeah, so I think, you know, everybody's going to have their own knowledge of how their body works and what they're comfortable with, for sure. So this this is an aspect where it's going to require some self, self-knowledge and some... Absolutely. Some thinking about, you know, what are you comfortable with? What is your, what risk profile are you comfortable with? What do you think is acceptable? What do you think is unacceptable? And, you know, what are you comfortable with? Yep. And then so there's another part of unimpaired. So we've talked a little bit about drinking, mm-hmm. etc. You could, whatever you do recreationally. There's also, you know, this idea of like, what about people who are like depressed or have severe anxiety or other mental illnesses that you know, might cross into these areas. And what if they're having a panic attack? You know, are are they unimpaired? Um, Maybe they're going through a really bad depressive episode. How unimpaired are they? Are they more uh, vulnerable in those times? I would certainly argue that yes, people who are, you know, having mental illness going through especially rough times might be more vulnerable. But I don't know if it makes them unimpaired. This is an an ongoing conversation even now, you know, within the community and outside of the community. Mm -hmm. So what are your thoughts on that, G? I'll admit I've not given it much thought before. As somebody who deals with depression on a fairly regular basis, I guess I've never been pursued while I've been in a depressive episode. So just for me personally, I don't think I would be I'd be receptive to somebody while I was in a depressive episode if they're making sexual advances on me just because of the way my depression works. But I also acknowledge this is the way that my depression works. Like, it is not going to be true for everybody who has depression. So, yeah, I I honestly don't know how to approach that. Yeah, again, I think this is going to be up to the individual to do a lot of self-reflection on how their mental illness affects them. I have pretty severe anxiety. So especially if I'm going into a scene with someone I don't know pretty well, or I don't know very well, it's I'm going to be more anxious because I'm more anxious, that could mean a number of things for how that scene might go. I do try to be upfront with my partners about my anxiety if I think it's going to be affecting me mm-hmm. significantly. And I know not everybody wants to disclose their mental illness. So, you know, that's also up to the individual to decide when it's worth disclosing to th- for them. Yeah. And when it's relevant. So, you know, there are some problems with impaired. And I think, you know, one other one that we should be- probably talk about and maybe we can discuss how this is going to relate to the kink community is like what about subspace i know people who are like in the hypnosis community like when you're fractionated and you are giving this sort of like can you consent mid-scene so i'm a big believer in in not renegotiating mid-scene i i try to strictly adhere to what was negotiated pre-scene and i don't think of as as far as i remember i've never asked anybody to negotiate mid-scene i have i I think there have been, there have definitely been times where I've like, this is an interesting idea I've had, like right in the middle of the scene. I kind of want to do it, except we didn't talk about it beforehand. There have been times where I've, I've been requested to do some things which weren't strictly negotiated beforehand, but I didn't feel like strayed into dangerous territory. But that's always coming from uh, the bottom in the scene. I... I try to adhere to a rule of like, I will never, I'll never, I'll try my best never to stray from what was negotiated beforehand, because I feel like the bottom is at a disadvantage when it comes to like thinking clearly at that moment. Like when you're having whatever sensation, whether it's pleasurable, painful, like the endorphins are going through your system, like you are at a disadvantage when it comes to thinking clearly at that moment in a way that 
as a top, I don't think I have that same disadvantage. Like, I do think there is a form of top space, or in my case, like, sadist space, but I don't think, I don't think it has quite the same effect on sort of my mental faculties as, as bottom or subspace does. Right. And it's sort of your responsibility as a top or, you know, I top and when I top, I kind of tell myself like, it doesn't matter if I'm going to go into top space. It's up to me to control the situation and make sure everything's going okay. Mm -hmm. And to be checking in with my partner and to be making those informed and responsible decisions. Yeah. And therefore I do actually ask for consent kind of repeatedly. This is brought up in this article. So we've been talking about a little bit about heteronormative consent models, and we've talked a little bit about kink. And I ha- I'm, I'll ask you to put up this article because we have like show notes, right? Yeah. When when we actually put out the when podcast, we actually put out the podcast. We'll have show notes. So there's this queerness and sexuality article on consent, and talks about queerness and consent. And I thought it was pretty good, and it does say that because those who are in queer or subversive relationships don't really have like the media to inform us how like a typical romantic or sexual encounter is supposed to go. Mm-hmm. It's actually kind of found that like queer people tend to be good at checking in more often because we don't really know. We're kind of stumbling along the way and that there's also other power dynamics we need to keep in mind. And of course, this is not to say that queer people can violate queer people's consent. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. They can. It just is like the power dynamics look different. I think the power dynamics look different also because there is no, sort of media example to follow you kind of have to approach it more mindfully from the very beginning it's not like like when a uh, when a cishet man and a cishet woman like start following the model they just sort of follow the steps of the model without really thinking about it or that's generally what happens that's not what happens all the time but when a a queer when when a queer couple start doing this or a queer triad or whatever like they immediately know like well we can't follow the the relationship escalator because <laughs> the relationship escalator has a very clear image, uh, which we do not fit into. Oh, and for our listeners who don't know, the relationship escalator refers to sort of the expected steps of a relationship. And sort of as the relationship progresses, you're sort of supposed to go up the escalator. So like if the first date goes well, you're expected to go on a second date second date leads to third date, dating leads to eventually moving in, so on and so forth. So that's kind of like the expected relationship model. That's what's shown in in most movies. Couple gets together, couple may have some fights, but, you know, they'll eventually sort of work things through and get married eventually. But I think because queer relationships don't have that model to follow, they have to be at least a little bit more mindful than most heteronormative couples. Yeah, absolutely. So they definitely are more mindful in general. And again, you know, some of them do fall into the relationship escalator or the typical romantic model that's out there. And they might fall into some of the same same traps, of course, Um, especially if one is perceived as a more masculine one and one is perceived as a more feminine one. Those power dynamics can play out in a very similar way, even if they're not, you know, a a stereotypical heteronormative man and woman. Yeah. And there are also stereotypical relationships in the queer community. I feel like the one I'm most familiar with is the stereotype that lesbians are ready to move in, like, on the first date. Right. So there are, you know, there's also harmful stereotypes within the queer community. And one other thing that the article points out is, you know, one of the power dynamics that might have to be considered is, like, is one partner cis and one partner trans? Mm Mm-hmm. 
and the author of this article kind of mentions this need of trans people sometimes to appeal to the cis partner. And this is something that I've personally noticed in my relationships, especially with cis identifying people, is that I am a little bit more susceptible to agreeing to things or doing things that I know are just going to please my cis partner because I'm trans. And that's, okay. again, like an internalized pressure. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not to say that all trans people do that. Yeah. Um, it's just something to keep in mind that that might be a power dynamic. And when I was talking about this with X, yeah. my other partner, or one of my other partners, you know, he also mentioned that one partner being allosexual and one partner being asexual can also have that power dynamic. Okay. Because, again, the driving narrative is going to be you know, this allocentric one, you know, both partners clearly want to engage in sex, you know, they're sexually attracted to each other. When you're sexually attracted to each other, you have sexual desire for that person. And, you know, in the ace community, we don't really have that same experience or that same discourse. Mm -hmm. Attraction and desire are separate. We can want to have sex with people we're not attracted to. There are people who are sex repulsed. There are people who are sex positive, sex neutral, whatever. And sex positive is maybe not the best word there. Sex favorable, maybe, but so one thing that X mentioned at this is that because I'm the asexual partner in our relationship, he feels less of a need to sexually appeal to me. Mm-hmm. And therefore, he has less pressure to perform in ways, uh, you know, that live up to some kind of this this model. Yeah. I thought, wow, that's really eye-opening to think about it that way. Mm-hmm. And that maybe also because I'm AS and if I have an allo partner, maybe I'm trying to appeal to some allocentric narrative. Okay. So these are all other power dynamics to keep in mind, I think, when we consider consent. Mm-hmm. So I understand where you're coming from, and I read the article. I feel like, for me, like these are very new dynamics to me. Uh, you were, you're the first ace person I've been in a relationship with, and only the second trans person I've been in a relationship with. And the first trans relationship didn't last that long. And I've also just started figuring out my own gender identity, which is gender fluid. So I I haven't... I honestly don't know how to respond to those kinds of power dynamics. Because when you get down to it, Em, I'm a really weird individual. Yeah. <laughs> because, because of the way that I grew up. And because of the various identities that I'm grappling with at this point, like, it's hard for me to know, is this particular witness because of the way that I grew up? Or is this particular witness because of the gender identities that I'm, my gender identity right now that's kind of in flux? Or is this like a weirdness just because, you know, I'm weird? <laughs> so I think one, one narrative, one social narrative, which has always been very highly present in my mind when it comes to sort of sexual relationships is that the man should pursue the woman. But I have seen so many variations in in media portrayal and real life where the man pursuing the woman just came off really creepy. And it was very obvious that the woman was not interested in him, but he could not read those signals or those cues. Or ignored them. Or ignored them. I was, I've always been deathly afraid of being that person. Sure. Of being... The creepy guy who won't back off. And I have, and that has always moderated my behavior. So I think there are, there are people who, who don't have that at the top of their mind who act very differently from the way that I do. So I've always been very conscious about not trying to pressure my partners for sex 
I've always been very conscious about uh, about the fact that I'm just not very good at approaching people who I'm romantically and sexually interested in. I've honestly done a lot better in the kink scene where, you know, you can do a couple scenes first or you can just go with the frank and honest approach of like, I'm interested in you. And that's going to get more reception and I feel like in the kink scene than it will in American culture. Right, because that honesty and that communication is not really there in the typical vanilla sphere. Yeah. So I guess I don't I don't quite know how to think about the the power dynamics between between a trans individual and a cis individual or between an al individual and a ace individual. Because these are partially because these are things I'm still like trying to come to terms with and partially because I I've always been kind of highly sensitive to some of these issues and have tried not to I've always tried not to be the one putting pressure on my partner. Yeah. As a partner, how how do you feel about that? Well, I think that we've talked about this a little bit before, and I think that it's good that you were able to speak from your perspective Mm -hmm. on this, because I think that it's obvious that you moderate your behavior and that you don't want to come across a certain way. And you certainly don't want to pressure me or I think, you know, any of your other partners, though I can't speak for them. Yeah. But I certainly uh, have not felt pressured. I do think that there, because of the aceness that I face, sometimes it's hard to explain that while I don't like actively want sex in the same way that aloe people do, Mm -hmm. that our, our motivations are different. Yeah. And some of my engaging with you is because of, oh, well, I know that aloe people like this sort of thing. But part of it is also, like, I genuinely also like this sort of thing, but my motivation is different. Yes. So I think you've been very considerate of that, and I think that that's a hard dynamic to work out, a hard intrinsic kind of dynamic to work out. I guess another question I'd have for you is, you know, I'm just sort of, I'm just sort of coming into being gender fluid over, like, the past year. You have been trans for much longer than I have. And I still generally present as as cis when I'm out when I'm walking around. Have you felt any pressure when it comes to that regard of my my cis presenting aspect? Well, I think that there is a little bit of pressure, not so much because of your cisness, but because you generally identify straightish. Yes, and I know that that's more complicated more complicated than that. Mm-hmm. But of course, there's also that difference between, you know, somebody who's straight and somebody who's not really straight. And so I think more of my pressure there, and again, this is internalized yeah, because of the power dynamic, uh, is that sometimes I feel like, oh, no, if I don't present femininely, then, you know, like, you're not going to be attracted to me. And that's not so much due to your cisness as much as it is due to your, quote, straightness. Mm-hmm. But I think in terms of gender, you know, you are still coming into who you are. You are still exploring your gender. And, like, I think that you should feel free to express that however you want or whenever you want. And I don't know how that going forward is going to affect, you know, those power dynamics. But hopefully it's something that is able to be acknowledged and worked through. Okay. I don't know if that's a good answer. I mean, I kind of put you on the spot, so. (laughs) Yeah, a little bit. So I think it's a good answer, especially for me putting you on the spot. (laughs) All right. And now I think it's time to sort of more deeply dive into consent in kink. And yes, dear listeners, it gets more complicated. 
So I think the first thing we should talk about is the opt-in versus opt-out models of consent. So the opt-in model is the, uh, I think it's sort of exemplified by the yes means yes. You are specifically agreeing to things as they come up or before they come up, and these are the only things that you're agreeing to, and that your partner should respect the, the things that you're agreeing to only. Yeah. The opt-out model of consent is essentially, I think this is, I think this is just kind of what most people do in practice. I'm not saying specifically in the kink scene, but I think like when it comes like to in general. in general, this is what most people do is like they will keep on doing stuff that interests them with their partner until the partner says, no, I don't want to do that particular thing. And yes, this can be a valid model of consent. But oftentimes, if people don't respect that no, then it becomes a violation of consent and a form of abuse. So why do we have these two different models of consent? Because they work in different scenarios, I feel like. I feel like the opt-in consent works better for pickup play and sort of hookups, if that makes sense. When it's like you're meeting a person for the first time and you want to be very clear about what you want to do for the next couple of hours. While an opt-out model of consent, I feel like, is more sort of what's applied to longer-term relationships, if that makes sense. Yeah, like you can do anything except X, Y, and Z. Yeah. And I think, yeah, generally that that's how it goes for longer-term relationships, especially you might start out with that opt-in mm-hmm. consent, like just say like for the first scene or whatever. And I, you know what? There is a relationship escalator in kink a little bit. You have one scene, it goes well. You have another scene, it goes well. Okay. And then eventually like those scenes lead to like a dynamic, yeah. et cetera. So we do and see that. And then you go to a kink event and you burn out horribly. <laughs> <laughs> um, Wait, I'm sorry. <laughs> That's not, it's not an escalator. That's a, that's a roller coaster. <laughs> a little bit. Um, yeah, but I think that you're right. Like the opt out tends to be applied more long term. Yeah. But some people do choose to apply that to, you know, the, the first scene. Yeah. Although I think that's, for me, that's a little bit too risky. Yeah. So again, this is going to come down to a lot of personal preference and self knowledge when it comes to how you want to apply these various models to yourself and with the people that you interact with. So did you want to get back to the the kink consent stuff? Like, we were going to talk about kink inside of a... Power dynamic. Power dynamic, yeah. Yeah. Like a power exchange dynamic. I yeah, guess, power, so yeah. So this is... So in kink, a lot of people are attracted to power exchange, where there's somebody who is a dominant and somebody who's a submissive, or to an even further extreme, somebody who's a master and somebody who's a slave. And I think... And M, this might be an area where you have more to say than I do. Okay. Because I'm not particularly interested in these kind of dynamics of dominance and submission. But I do think that there can be a lot of issues surrounding consent when you're in this kind of dynamic. Like, are you doing this thing because you really want to do this thing? Or are you ordered to be doing this thing? Is it okay that you're being ordered to do this thing because you're a dynamic I feel like there's a lot to unpack here. There's a lot to unpack. It's a huge topic. <laughs> do, do, we need our own ep- do we need an episode for this? We might need an episode just for this, but I think I can say just in short. Well, first of all, I've been on both sides. Okay. I am currently a dominant in a dynamic. Yeah. And then I've been a submissive and mm-hmm. a slave. 
you know, in a 24-7 dynamic for four years. And I would say that the person who is the S-type is generally more vulnerable. Yes. Uh, and is generally the one, again, going back to these inherent dynamics. And I think it was extra, I was extra vulnerable in my relationship because I was still struggling with my gender identity at the time. And I was coming to terms with being trans and all of this other stuff and plus mental illness. So what I think I will say now that I've been on both sides and experienced that is that it's really important to give time when both parties can talk on equal footing, on equal ground. Okay. And that means, even if it means that, you know, the person on, on bottom has to like, in their head, just be like, well, I'm being ordered to have this time where we are on equal footing. Because I know it can be hard to come out of that space. Yeah. Especially in like a 24-7 ongoing dynamic. Mm -hmm. It needs to happen. There needs to be a point when the two parties can, in my opinion. Again, I know there's going to be people who are going to say, I would never be on equal ground with my master or whatever. Yeah. I get that. Uh, I don't think it, it works in practice to not. The only way that you can unpack all of this is to do it. Mm -hmm. If you're going to be really honest with how the dynamic is going and what's really okay and what's really not okay. And it's okay if you say, like, after that equal footing conversation, you know, like, the M type or the D type still goes back to having that full power and control. And maybe everything that was said in there doesn't matter. And if you agree that that's fine, that's fine. But I think any responsible M type or D type is going to come out of a conversation like that and think... What can I do better? How can I better get consent for these things? Or like, you know, am, is this actually what my S-type wants to be doing? So yeah. uh, the best way I can relate to this is, is, as a, as, is as a sadist. I, I'm always, I always try to be aware of exactly what kind of pain I'm causing. Mm -hmm. So basically like everything I do to other people I have done to myself, whether that's violet wand or biting i have i have slapped myself in the face so i have an understanding of like how much how much weight causes how much sensation stinging sensation because you know i you know i'm sort of a firm believer of like everything i do to other people i know exactly what i'm causing now disclaimer you don't know exactly what you're causing you just have a fair approximation because everybody's body is different. But I try to have as close an idea to what I'm causing as possible. So one thing I used to do a lot, I think it's before we entered a relationship, I used to like, I used to like to bite on people's ears and I would bite fairly hard on people's ears. And, you know, I was told this is extremely painful and I would kind of laugh it off and, you know, do it some more because <laughs> that's what sadists do. <laughs> Until finally, a partner of mine bit me on my ear, which is something I can't do to myself. And I was like, oh, that hurts a lot. Like, it hurts a lot more than I thought it would. And it's like a part of it is that it, it lasts longer than the bite itself. And like, it's sort of an ache that goes on, which I had not realized. And from then on, once I was aware of that fact, I proceeded to moderate my behavior and I would... When I did bite people on the ear, I would bite a lot less. Well, I did it less often, and I put a lot less pressure when I bit somebody on the ear. Now that I was aware of exactly how much, well, not exactly, but I was more aware of how much pain it was causing rather than the pain that I thought it was causing. So that's kind of the closest I can come to sort of like moderating your behavior after you've learned new information in a power exchange dynamic. I think that's also why people who were previously more submissive or 
are now switches or are now topping more tend to be a little bit better too at being in the D role because now they've had that firsthand experience. What is it like to submit? And what is it like to give up that power? So I think it's similar in that way too. Yeah. Yeah. Honestly, like I wish that people who are more dominant would feel like how sadists often do. Like, I want to feel it. I want to experience. I've heard sadists say that. I want to feel it first. I want to experience this first. I want to know what it feels like. I want to know about what kind of pain I'm causing. You don't get that from dominance. There, Not a lot of dominance will say, like, I want to know what it's like to submit. I want to be in that situation to be able to understand my partner. No, in fact, that's seen as weakness. You know, oh, then you're not a real dominant. You know, you hear those kinds of yeah. narratives. And that's a sucky, sucky life. And this, of course, is mostly cis men. Yeah, I mean, I, when I first entered the scene, I, I don't, I'm not even sure, like, how this narrative entered my mind. Because not like I was consuming, well, no, I was actually consuming, like, vast amounts of erotica. But, like, when I entered the scene, like, I kind of assumed that, you know, I would be a dominant man. Like, I would find, like, a submissive, and that's the kind of relationship I would have. As I learned more about myself and what my actual preferences were, it became fairly clearly that I was not a dominant. Like, I was not... Oh, yes, I find so much pleasure in ordering people around when, you know, I can't get my own life together. <laughs> and, you know, I part of it was like I felt a bit like a hypocrite, like ordering people around. Partially it was there was some uncomfortable dynamics within myself. And partially it's like, yeah, this is a lot of work. <laughs> I don't I don't understand. <laughs> don't understand why people find so much enjoyment in this. <laughs> it's so much work. Yeah, I guess for people who really enjoy it, it's not a lot of work. Yeah, I mean... If it becomes too much work, then you're doing something wrong. <laughs> I mean, I think... I know you hated this this analogy when I first came up with it, but I think it's a lot like couponing. <laughs> like... I don't remember this. Oh, you hated this analogy when I first came up with it, but I just kept on going with it. Go ahead. So I think, in my opinion, DS, or MS, is a lot like couponing. <laughs> You can get a lot of value out of it because there are people who have like been able to reduce like $200 grocery bills down to $2 or $3 or something ridiculous like that by combining lots of coupons together. But if you do not actually enjoy the act of sorting through all the coupons, cutting those coupons out, figuring out which coupons apply to each other, I feel like if you don't enjoy that act, couponing is not worth it because there's so much time and so much energy put into that. It is not fiscally rewarded the amount of time and energy you put in does not match the discount you get but if you enjoy it then it's worthwhile right i think it's a silly analogy but it's i think it's appropriate <laughs> i think it's somewhat appropriate i'll give you that our last big topic is on consensual non-consent <sighs> i kind of just want to skip this to the next episode all right i think yeah wait no no no, we're at least going to briefly cover briefly it. Briefly cover it. We're going to briefly cover it. All right. Though I feel like this is a topic. <laughs> I think this, as well as consent and within a power exchange dynamic, could be its own episode. Episode. All right. So, for our listeners who are listening to us and have never have never discussed consent before, may be asking themselves right now, what the fuck is consensual non-consent? This seems to be a paradoxical term. It sure does seem to be that way, G. <laughs> And, dear confused listener, <laughs> you are correct. It is a paradoxical term. <laughs> so I'm going to try to be brief, but accurate. M, please correct me if you feel like I'm wrong, 
because I probably am in some particular point. Like I said at the beginning of this episode, G, I will always correct you when you're wrong. So there are a number of fantasies and scenarios and fetishes which fall under the non-consensual umbrella. This can range from, I know there are communities which, there's there are certain communities which fetishize like drugging somebody. There are certain feti- there are certain communities which fetishize mind control. And there are certain communities which fetishize sexual assault. The actual act of doing these things is non-consensual. People still want to be able, there are still people who enjoy that fantasy. A lot more people than you'd normally assume. There are a lot of people who enjoy these kinds of fantasies. So consensual non-consent is a way to do these kinds of fantasies that explicitly involve revoking somebody's consent and forcing them to do something in a way that is consensual. Right. By getting some sort of original consent. By getting some form of original consent and also by, and there are some people who are going to disagree with me on this, I know they exist, also by making sure that safe words are used. So I'm of the opinion that if a safe word is used during a consensual, non-consent scene, then you need to obey those safe words. If if it's a yellow, then you need to talk, and you need to talk outside of the consensual, non-consent space. You need to talk with your partner at that moment, as an equal. If it's a red, you need to stop right then. And there are people who disagree with me on that, that, you know, it's not a real consensual non-consent scene if there's a if there's a safe word involved. Yeah, if there's like a fail safe. I guess I'm just not willing to accept that kind of risk. I'm not the the failure state in, in this kind of scenario is actual like psychological trauma or uh, actual physical trauma or actual physical trauma. And I guess that's that's just not a risk I'm willing to take without safe words. And Yes, listener, I said I. I have done these kinds of practices before. I have used safe words before. And and, and consensual non-consent is one of... I'm not sure if I'm actually comfortable saying that. What? Consensual non-consent is actually one of, like, one of my big fetishes. So say it. Consensual non-consent is certainly one of my biggest fetishes. Alright, since M took the lead, consensual non-consent is one of my bigger fetishes that I have. And I have practiced consensual non-consent with a, with a few of my partners. It is not with all of my partners, because not everybody is into this, uh, but I've practiced it with the partners who have enjoyed it, and it has been a, it has been a I don't want to say pleasurable, but it's been a satisfying experience for both partners, and for me and my partner, in the times I've done it. Ah. <sighs> So I think the last thing that I'm going to say, and this kind of wraps up, and it also relates to something that I've said to my partner X many times. And this applies to consensual non-consent. That's also abbreviated sometimes CNC. Yes. My firm belief is that there should always be a way out. Mm -hmm. So do you want to do our little saying at the end? Yes. have it up. Which I did not type out. I should have prepared that. Why don't you get up the last times and we'll... And this is M. This is G. Don't be afraid to love how you love. Love what you love. And love who you love. This is KNP signing off. Cute.
If you'd like to get in touch with either myself or M, you can tweet us at KNP Podcast or email us at kinky.nerdy.poly at gmail.com. Oh, I did get your gift. Of course, it's from Belgium, as I said. Belgium. I'm still curious about this gift. Yes, it's full blown Dutch gift. What did you get me from from Belgium? Did you get me some waffles? Um, no. No, no waffles. No waffles. I got you Belgian fries and mayonnaise. <laughs> still don't understand the mayonnaise thing. It's delicious, though. I mean, I barely stand aioli when they like. I mean, aioli is essentially like mayonnaise with other stuff in it. Yeah, it's delicious. I, I can barely stand aioli when they put like a shit ton of garlic in it. <laughs> garlic aioli. I couldn't imagine just like straight up like dipping a fry into some mayonnaise and like. I mean, maybe I should give it a try. Maybe you should. You know what? Actually, it took me a long time to get used to it when I lived in Belgium, so. You know what I'm going to do? For when we're doing Dream Askew, I'm going to get some fries going in the air fryer. And we'll have a variety of dipping sauces, and I'll make sure that one of those dipping sauces is. Go ahead, say it. Mayonnaise. (laughs) Heck yeah.